I tell stories for a living, and in my 16 years in the news industry, I've seen it all. I've covered everything from national tragedies and celebrities while working in Chicago to a devastating commercial airline crash and the daily crime and court stories in Lexington, Kentucky. That's where I am now, and that's where I was in 2013 when I was assigned one of the most twisted murder tales I have ever heard. What's worse is it was playing out at Christmas time, a time where traditionally we as reporters get a break from all the bad news. It's a time where we collectively feel good about humanity. But late December of 2013 was different, very different. Alex Johnson. Alex Johnson. Alex Johnson. Alex Johnson. Alex Johnson. 32-year-old Alex Johnson hasn't been seen since last Friday. What happened to Alex? Before we get into what happened to Alex, I want to tell you about who he was, and perhaps it's best explained by the two women who knew him best, Alex's younger sister, Casey, and his mom, go? Judy. I am. All right. I'm a mother of boys myself. I know that they're fun, they're adventurous, and from what Casey tells me, that's exactly how Alex was. How would you describe Alex's personality and his character? He was easygoing. He was just fun. He had this infectious laugh. He was always daring, always right on the edge, just um, trying to, um, I don't know, I guess create excitement or get adrenaline rush. I'm not sure. Even from the time that he was a little boy, he had this wicked sense of humor. He had uh, dimples and uh, flashed them all the time. When he was a baby, I'd pick him up in the morning and it would be like a ray of sunshine because he would just be smiling and have those dimples, deep dimples going. There was a seven and a half year age difference between Casey and Alex Johnson, but Casey knew Alex like the back of her hand. And on a crisp afternoon in early October, I invited her to Lexington to talk about him. How are you? Good. How was your drive? Uh, long. long. Yeah. What does long it take traffic. you to get here? Uh, it took over two and a half. Two and a half? Oh, wow. The two grew up in Bowling Green, a city of around 68,000 in western Kentucky. Its quaint, rural setting, she says, was perfect. He was a great brother. I mean, he was always so outdoorsy, even as a kid. We we grew up in the country. Um, It was about a mile uh, across a cornfield to the Drake's Creek. And he and the neighbor boys, it was a neighborhood full of boys. I didn't have any girls. Um, They would go across and spend the days at at the creek. Um, They would camp there. They would just do things that boys did, you know. And I was always so jealous because I could never tag along. I was too young. But um, he always grew up biking. He, He would bike. He'd go down the road. He'd go to Woodburn, which was... 30, 45 minutes away by bike. He wouldn't take any water. He would just, he was always just adventurous and he wasn't scared of anything. He would stop at people's houses and just drink out of their hose in the country just, <laughs> just randomly. 
Talk to anyone who knew him, and Alex was synonymous with adventure. Casey, too, really. And their parents, Judy and Lee Johnson, couldn't have been more supportive. Casey says not only that, they encouraged their kids to get out and explore. And they certainly did. The siblings became globetrotters with friends all over the world. He started going to Mexico as a teenager um, with a, a family that we that he knew, I guess, through school. Um, his friend David, and so he went down there with them almost every summer. He'd spend Christmas down there sometimes, and Mexico was like his second home. We were incredibly proud of both of our children. They're both best kids you can have. After high school, Alex was drawn 160 miles east to Lexington. Horse country, a basketball mecca, bigger but not too far away that he couldn't get back home and visit childhood friends, and of course, his family. How are you, Cass? Alex! She's not ready for that yet. She's got to warm up to it. (laughs) He really didn't know where he wanted to go to college, and so my parents kind of made him go to UK and look around. And I think on the way out of town, they drove through Transy's campus and he took one look at the campus and said, this is where I want to be. Um, there was just something about it that, that drew him there. And it was the only school he applied to, the only school he wanted to go to. And, and that's what he did. And he studied Spanish. He spoke the language fluently, thanks in part to all of those trips to Jalisco, Mexico over the years. After earning his degree at Transylvania, Alex took a break from his education. It was supposed to be temporary. The 32-year-old had been accepted at Georgetown College and was planning to do graduate work for a master's in fine arts. You told me once on the phone, Alex was brilliant. He was. He was, I mean, off the charts. I mean, IQ, he had common sense. He had um, book knowledge. He could have done anything that he wanted to do. He could have been a doctor, he, but he just wasn't interested. He just wanted to, he wanted to be free, I guess, working maybe a nine to five in an office, you know, cubicle. Just really wasn't how he saw his life going. No one in Alex's family really knew where his life was going next, but they were gently pushing him to figure it out. He did love to cook and was employed by the University of Kentucky as a chef at the Boone Center when he went missing. Eventually, the world would learn Alex was working on a plan just before he vanished. The Fox 56 10 o'clock news starts now. Digging back through archives, it looks as if December 26th was the day Alex's story began ramping up in the news and local newspapers. All four Lexington TV stations reported on his disappearance. The information was scarce, but I remember the urgency was palpable. Alex's friends were worried sick, and they were desperate for the public's help. He hadn't been heard from since Friday night, December 20th three days before he was supposed to head back home to Bowling Green. His family says he disappeared without a trace, and police call the circumstances suspicious. Tonight, family members of a missing Lexington man are pleading for your help in finding him. Take me up to that week. What do you remember about that week? Because now we're five days before Christmas. Um, When was the last time you had talked to him? I had talked to him 
probably Tuesday or Wednesday, something like that, and just said, what are you doing this weekend? You know, are you still coming? He was coming on Monday, um, and we were going to go shopping. He said he was having trouble figuring out what to get my parents for Christmas. We, w- we were going to go to the mall when he got into town on Monday. Last Saturday, Alex Johnson missed a work meeting at UK. His family says that was the first sign something was wrong. When he failed to show up at his family's home in Bowling Green for Christmas, they called police. I don't remember the Lexington Police Department sounding the alarms right away or notifying us, the media, of this missing man. It was put on our radar by the Johnson family. We love him so much. We're a close family. And for him just to not show up on the holidays, it's just completely out of character for him. Who was holding some details of his disappearance close to the vest while pleading with every news station to get the word out. One of Johnson's friends told me he rode a bike most places that he went. That bike was still here at the apartment along with his truck. At the time, we had no idea how much investigating Casey had done herself, beginning with a phone call Sunday from Alex's girlfriend. The night before, he'd been at his apartment on North Hanover talking to his girlfriend on the phone. That's the last time anyone's known to have had contact with him. I was... I was out kayaking. I was I was getting ready to kayak. We had had a huge um, storm the night before, Saturday night, and the Gasper River was out of its um, out of its banks. And I stood on the bridge and looked into the river, and it, it was it terrified me. It was we had some white water going. I mean, that's what I wanted. That's why I was there. But I had a voice tell me not to do it in my head. It said, your parents need you. Don't do this. And that had never happened to me before. I mean, it was clear as day. Don't do this. Your parents need you. And so I told my friends, take me back to my car. Like, sorry. <laughs> had to get my kayak out of the river. <laughs> they had to take me back to the to the takeout. And we were out in the country. So when I was getting back into town, I had voicemails and text messages and from Lisa Lisa Horobin was Alex's girlfriend of about a year. They met through a mutual friend of Alex's, and it was a long-distance love. Lisa lived roughly 12 hours away in Connecticut, where she was finishing up nursing school. Later that night, I had texted him, and I didn't hear back, but I, like I said, had gone to sleep maybe around midnight. And then the next day, it was maybe 1 o'clock, and I started to get worried, thinking, like, I don't know if I should be, like, annoyed because he's not calling me or worried because he's not calling me. And then I called him, and his phone went right to voicemail. Didn't ring. It was off at that time. So I had continuously tried to call him for the remainder of that day. And I remember that night when I had I had gone out and I had got back to my parents' house, and I just felt, like, absolutely like very just unsettling feeling um I felt really like nervous that something had happened to him I remember I actually started crying that evening and I had called him a bunch of times and he wasn't answering on Sunday I had contacted his sister Casey and she said I haven't talked to him have you talked to him no I thought he was camping you know maybe he has no signal. Maybe his phone died. You know, I'm sure everything's fine. And so, um, but was there concern in her voice? Yes. She said, I haven't, you know, we don't go two days without talking. I don't know what's going on. I haven't talked to him since Friday night. 
Lisa was ready to jump in the car and head to Lexington, but Casey waved her off. She said she had a lot of Alex's friends' phone numbers and she'd start calling around. And that's exactly what she did. When you would call Alex's phone, it would go immediately to this message. Almost like the service had been cut off. It, it didn't make any sense. It, we were on the same plan. you know. So I, I called AT&T on Monday and I asked him about that. But at the time on Sunday, this other guy that they used to go camping together, I, I called his phone. I got the same message. So I was like, they're camping together. Clearly, they don't have signal. It's all good. And she had talked to her mom later, I think on Sunday, and said, oh, my mom talked to him Saturday morning. He was shopping for me, and and everything's fine. Um, and then her mom ended up looking at her call log on Monday and said, okay, it was Friday morning. It wasn't Saturday morning. So now we put the, the day back on Friday instead of Saturday. And so that's when things really started to, you know, Monday comes and she tells me that and I'm at work and I'm calling AT&T and I'm saying, what, when's his phone last been used? What was the location? You know, what has it been turned off? They told me how to, to print the phone records. So I'm printing phone records and I'm working my way back. And I talked to a coworker of his and he said, I was supposed to see him on Friday night. I couldn't get a hold of him. He, it was actually the last guy to text him, and that's why I reached out to him. He said, I texted him Friday. I didn't hear anything from him. And he missed a work meeting Saturday morning. It, it's not like him. You know, something, what's going on? And was that pretty much the response you were getting from everyone? Like, no one was really concerned. He's probably just out doing Alex things. Is that yeah. the response you were getting? Yeah. I mean, he didn't, you know, he wasn't held down by, by you know, he didn't have people who demanded his you know, whereabouts 24, you know, he was, he was just, he did his own thing. But if he gut, wanted to go camping, he would go, cam- you know, he didn't have to answer to anyone. But in, in my gut, in yeah. Gut by Monday, was it different? Yes. By Monday, I knew that, you know, something had happened and I was thinking, okay, if he didn't go camping, where the heck is he? You know, what what's happening? What, this doesn't make any sense. And by Monday, I mean, it was cold. It had rained like all weekend. It had, you know, it was several inches of rain. It was a torrential downpour like it, it it seemed really something was wrong as Casey crossed off contacts on Alex's call log she recalled something Lisa had mentioned about her last phone call with Alex he was on the phone with his girlfriend when he heard a knock at his apartment on North Hanover he hung up and hasn't been seen since by Monday she had told me you know Friday night when we were on the phone he said Mark is here. He has a surprise for me downstairs. I'll call you later tonight. So when she tells me that on Monday, I'm like, okay, well, that's weird. Already, she didn't like the feeling in her stomach. Casey knew very little about Mark Taylor. She'd met him only twice, back-to-back days in September of 2013, when she drove to Lexington to hang out with Alex for the weekend. He took her to a local bar. The two shot pool. They were having a blast, but she says her mood immediately changed when Mark walked in. My first impression of him, he came in and he had a a hat on and it said, Kush. And I could see a scar on his face and just, just the way he carried himself was just not like any of Alex's other friends. Um, And it just, 
you know, you always have a gut instinct, especially when you meet, you know, new people, you get a first impression. And my first impression of him was not good. So much so that I talked to Alex about it later and said, why are you hanging out with this guy? You know, he, he looks evil. I literally said, he looks evil. I'm not who you make me out to be. I'm not. Mark Taylor is inmate number 285372 at Little Sandy Correctional Complex in Sandy Hook, Kentucky. But in 2013, he was considered one of Alex Johnson's best friends. You've heard the Johnson family now talk about the stable, supportive two-parent home that Alex and Casey grew up in. Well, Mark Taylor's upbringing in St. Petersburg, Florida, was vastly different. His mother battled cancer for years before she passed away in 2006. Mark's father was a former pawn shop owner turned abusive drunk who all but abandoned his family. He died in 2009 of complications tied to his alcoholism. Mark and his sister Jessica lost their way for a while after that. She went down a road of drugs and trouble and became an addict herself. Mark says he briefly sold small amounts of marijuana, but then turned to trades. For approximately two years, I essentially absconded from the world. I uh, fished every day and played poker and tried to find myself. Um, I have uh, I won tournaments. Um, I, I, I polished my seamanship skills. I, I am... Um, I'm a very accomplished fisherman. His late mother was also an artist. She taught Mark how to work with gold and silver, leather products, etc. Mark mingled in it all. While living in Florida, he was also a lifeguard and was certified in it. Mark, when you were a lifeguard, uh, I take it that you had to earn a certificate? Yes. What did you have to do to earn that certificate? I believe it was a three-day course, and it was provided by the Boy Scouts of America, um, and we trained on dummies and, uh, uh, peop- I mean, people. It was, it was live demonstrations on how to perform CPR, uh, clear passageways, um, uh, find pulses, uh, you know, see if there was a pulse, you know, be, be able to identify um, the situations that could occur during the water, you know, things in the water. Mark says he survived the best that he could while living in Florida, but in early 2011, he decided to move closer to stable family members, aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents in central Kentucky. I came up here with a little business sense in, in the uh, selling marijuana. It was, um, it was kind of culture. This is Kentucky. And uh, there was... Uh, there was an opportunity to. There was an opportunity here. Um, Stewart knew what I was into and provided me with a contact who was a wholesaler of marijuana. And can you give me an approximate time that you met with Mr. Johnson? Uh, probably, probably March 2011. Stu is Mark's cousin from Kentucky, and Alex Johnson was one of Stu's best friends. That's how the two men met. Alex and I uh, have rather contrasting styles, um, but our fundamentals, I believe, are very similar. 
and that's where we clicked. We're both outdoorsmen. We're both uh, we both in, uh, appreciate the environment. We both save you know turn off the lights when you leave so you don't waste energy. Um, we're very frugal. Uh, we're very um, our our interests really aligned. Uh, he liked guns and and bikes, and uh, I liked clothes and backpacks. Alex, at the time, was also a casual marijuana smoker and dealer, something he kept hidden from his family for obvious reasons. His parents would have never approved, and one of his grandfathers was a former Kentucky State Police trooper. That said, younger sister Casey did know a little bit about Alex's pot use. I believe the way he got started is the way most people get started, which is like, I'm going to buy X amount, and if I can sell 90% of it and recoup my money, then I smoke for free. You know, he, in the later days, he was getting it directly from a grower and selling it directly to his friends. There was no middlemen. It was, you know, it's not a gang. It's not cartel. It's, you know, he... He didn't think that there was anything wrong with marijuana. And mind you, there's 33 states now where it is decriminalized and or legal for medicinal use or for recreational use. Rather quickly, business was good. Still, it was different than what Alex was used to. The outdoorsy guy from Bowling Green didn't get into the weed business to get rich. And Casey worried that Mark Taylor was taking Alex's recreational pot use to another level. Casey feared the new company he was keeping and the additional exposure spelled trouble. Once again, she flashed back to that first encounter with Alex's new friend from Florida. And I said, you hang out with people that look like that, especially wearing hats that say Kush, you know, you're asking to get caught. You worried about the attention? That the attention, drawing. yeah, because you could tell that he walked in and he was dressed to a tee. It was Busters. It was a, a, a music joint. You know, we were just there like, that's not how Alex looked. He, you know, he didn't dress up. I think he owned one suit that he got for a, a wedding. Casey isn't exactly sure what Alex saw in Mark. The two friends couldn't have been more different. Even their individual groups of friends didn't exactly mesh. As I would say, what are you doing with your life? You know, what, what, what's your future going to be like? Um, and he would always say, you know, I'll, I'll figure something out. I'll, you know, I can do this. I can do that. This is not forever. There was something, though, Alex had his sights set on. Lisa. She and Alex were looking to the future. A move to Lexington after she finished school was certainly in the plan. And with that was Alex's intention to leave the drug business behind. All of it. Next time on Taking Alex. That's something that haunts me, is that I had to tell my parents that their son was missing. I knew. I knew instantly he was missing, and we hadn't heard from him by Christmas Day. I knew that he was gone. Okay, Mark. Well, just so you know, when I come to Lexington, I'm calling the police, and I'm going to tell them that you came to his house on Friday.